The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for this place. We thank you for one another. But chiefly, we thank you for your Son and his love for us that we see a glimpse of in this wonderful thing called marriage. We ask that as we look at this chapter this morning, you would help us by your Spirit to see uh, aspects of marriage maybe that we haven't seen before, aspects of your love that we haven't seen before, and that it would be helpful to us in our own marriage and relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I told you all we'd have coffee. Praise the Lord that that actually happened. So thank you to Irene uh, Rowe. If you all see her, give her a huge thanks. And as Drew said, finish that. She brought two carafes over. And I was like, there's no way we have two carafes of people that come in the rain this morning. So, well, that's what he was like. We're going to put a dent in that. I'm like, let's finish it off and we'll have two. So I have, I've got high hopes for it. Uh, This week, we're going to look at the second chapter of Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage. A couple housekeeping things. We won't meet next Sunday in here, all right? Because we have a special guest speaker who is coming to preach at St. Philip's, the Reverend Dr. Michael Ward. I'm really excited. I haven't heard him. I know he's like the world's leading scholar on C.S. Lewis, which is pretty neat, even more than Brian, like, which is saying something. Brian is, yeah, we're all geeking out at this point. So we've got the Mir Anglican Conference this week uh, that goes Thursday through Sunday, or Thursday through Saturday. But then we have Michael Ward coming and preaching. And so he will be doing a Sunday school in in the parish hall that I'm just going to say Foundations is being canceled. We're going to cancel our class and just meet in there for that time. Other thing is, last week I gave out discussion questions that I forgot probably the three most important questions, and I, I forgot them again this week. Hey, y'all, welcome. And so what I'd like you to do, if you have the, you should have three things this week. You should have the outline of the chapter, kind of where we're going today. You should also have the, this little page called Structure of Ephesians 5. We're going to do a little Bible study this morning on Ephesians 5, since that's the whole book Keller kind of does an exposition of Ephesians 5. And you should also have the discussion questions. Please do me a favor. All of these are great. They're really technical, kind of, there's a very clear answer, and you could answer all of these questions that I, I just copied and pasted something that I found, like, online. And I was reading through them, like, these don't really penetrate a lot on the personal level. So do this. I would love, just humor me, add these questions to start your discussions. What stood out to you? And and you're discussing this with your spouse or partner or whatever. What stood out to you? What challenged you? And what is one practical thing that you would want to implement this week in your marriage or relationships? So those are much, those, answering those three questions is going to have far more greater effect than just answering all, finding the correct answers to those questions that are on the discussion questions, because they're not, they're not really great discussion questions. But hopefully we will change that going forward. All right, so last week we talked about the secret of marriage. Really, that was a reference to Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul talks about uh, this mystery 
between Christ and his church, and he's saying that, that the mystery of marriage, the secret of marriage, is a Greek word called mysterion, which meant secret or mystery, something that has now been revealed. And we talked about really kind of the meaning of marriage, that marriage is something so much grander than just the horizontal relationship between a husband and a wife. It actually is meant to be a reflection of God's love for his people. And that amps up the intensity of the relationship and what there's both it's a revelation of what God's love is for us we see that in marriage but we also we reveal God to the world through in and through uh, the institution of marriage this week we are hopefully you're like man that was such a daunting high goal of what marriage is how in the world can we do it so I really appreciate that the very next chapter that Keller does is go into the power for marriage and I reread the chapter several times and got lost a few times in the flow of thought, like just how each heading related to one another. But the point, I think, is this that is going to be really key because he he starts talking about several other things later in the book that he's going to bring up, most specifically gender roles or differences, the fact that you may have noticed there's a difference between men and women. And I really, really appreciate he doesn't start with the differences. He starts with what we have in common. We'll talk about that in a second. But you notice every chapter in this book is, at the beginning of it, it has something from Ephesians 5. He's, he's zooming in on at least one part of this chapter. So I thought it would be helpful before we dive in to kind of give you just the larger framework of what is happening in Ephesians 5. And this is going to bolster what he's saying um, I found this to be really helpful because if you, you, you're going to want to get a Bible out, turn to page, this is the Bible in the pew, the Revised Standard Version. I'm on page 1020. And so I'd love it if you follow along, just because we're going to geek out here a little bit. Morning. Uh, go ahead. There's some copies of uh, the outline and discussion questions. And what we're going over right now, Langdon, is uh, the structure of Ephesians 5. So... This book, The Meaning of Marriage, is covering, it goes all through Ephesians 5. So let's look at page 1020 and kind of do a a deep dive real quickly in what does Ephesians 5 actually say. So I'm going to read it out loud. Top, Top of 120, verse 15, Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, always and for everything giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Or in the ESV, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, wives, be subject or submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved her, loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And it goes on and on, but we can stop right there. So most people, they hear 
Who here has read this chapter before? Great. You've, even if you haven't, that's, that's fine. Uh, most people, and Keller notes this, they zoom in on this part where it says be subject or submit. And it's incredibly controversial, offensive in our modern day. But what I wanted to do is kind of show you what Keller is talking about, that there's, there's a structure here. And what he's going to zoom in today is verse 21, which is actually, it's in this, it starts a new paragraph, but in the Greek, it doesn't start a new paragraph. It finishes the paragraph that comes before. And so there's a really intentional structure that's going on in Ephesians chapter 5. He is starting out, he noticed there are three contrasts, and on the third contrast, there are then three participles that explain how to live the positive of the third contrast. And on the third participle, there are then three contexts of what submission looks like. So you're definitely going to need this structure of Ephesians over there for those who just came in. We're looking at uh, a little bit of a Bible study here on Ephesians 5. He's saying before we get all bristly about the differences, the different commands, the command in verse 22 for wives to submit or be subject to your husbands, or we get to the command, husbands, love your wives, he's saying, hold off, look at something that's really, really important. And I really appreciate that because you know, here are the contrasts. The contrast, don't be unwise, but be wise. Don't be foolish, but understand the, what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And you, if you're thinking, that's a really odd contrast. I, you know, getting drunk on wine versus being filled with the Spirit. I get, don't be unwise, but be wise. Don't be foolish, but understand. But don't get drunk, be filled with the Spirit. Like, what the Spirit does is bring a lot of the same effects, but on a much deeper level, that wine or alcohol does, which is freedom and joy. That is kind of, if you look at the two things, and Keller does another talk on this verse about uh, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's really good, but basically the, the chapter that we're looking at is talking about the importance of being filled with the Spirit because that is the power to actually live in marriage. So the, in verses 19 through 21 of Ephesians 5, there are three participles that you'll notice. A participle, just one of those ing words that if you haven't been in English in, in a while, that's kind of what that means. But these verses explain what does it mean to live, to be filled with the Spirit. And so there's three participles, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So being filled with the Spirit, a mark of that is singing. Again, joy, freedom often leads to, to singing. So singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs uh, to the Lord. A second participle, a second mark of being filled with the Spirit is giving thanks. Gratitude, when the Spirit fills us, He causes gratitude to well up in our hearts. But there's a third thing that the Spirit does when He works in our hearts. He doesn't just cause us to sing to one another. He doesn't just cause us to be grateful to God. He also, what Keller says, uh, radically strikes at our pride and removes our self-interest. In other words, he causes us to submit our own needs for the sake of others. And notice, this is a command to all Christians. He hasn't gotten to husbands and wives yet. 
He's just addressing the entire Ephesian church. All Christians need to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They need to give thanks. They need to submit to one another. Now, how does that play out specifically? Well, that's what the next chapter is all about. He gives three contexts of what submitting to one another specifically looks like. He talks about husbands and wives, children and parents, and servants and masters. All three of those relationships should have a distinct note of what that, that will look differently in each of those. Uh, those relationships are not identical, is what he's going to talk about later on. But what he's starting with today is that every Christian should be filled with the Spirit, and a mark of that is this removal of self-interest or self-centeredness, which is the bulk of what the chapter is about. So do you all see that? I feel like that's a really important thing because uh, turn to the backside of this because this is in a footnote that he gives. I'm just going to read this. The point here is that we shouldn't use verse 21 to flatten all the distinctions between the duties of wives and husbands, which I've heard many people, they look at verse 21 and they say, see, it calls everyone to submit. Therefore, what follows doesn't matter. We should all just submit. Keller says, no, we shouldn't flatten the distinctions. However, however, and he's going to get to the distinctions later. On the other hand, we must not make the opposite mistake and fail to see the mutuality and reciprocity in the duties of husbands and wives to each other. He notes a number of Bible verses, Philippians 2, which tells all Christians not to look to their own interests, but to the interests of others. They should always submit their own desires for the good of others and the community. Also, Galatians 5.13, where Paul tells all Christians boldly to be douloi, which is the Greek word for bondservant. So a, a servant, a bondservant, is somebody who radically submits their own interests for the interests of somebody else. And Paul says that is what all Christians ought to be. They ought to be douloi. And so he sums it up like this. In light of these, uh, Galatians 5, Philippians 2, and other places, uh, in light of these exhortations, it would be a mistake to think that wives are not called to love, uh, though wives are not called to love their husbands, nor husbands to serve and to defer to their, his wife in Ephesians 5, 22-31. Nevertheless, some kind of mutual love and service is implied. It'd be a mistake to say there's no mutual service, there's no mutual sacrifice and love that isn't implied in these verses. So the, the point is both husband and wives are meant to give themselves up, though that's not going to look exactly the same and we'll get to that later, but today let's focus on the, this radical call to submit your own interest for the other, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, uh, great, sorry about that. All right, we're going to transition into the book of Keller here. We're going to leave. <clears throat> so, the power for marriage, that's where he starts, and he's saying it's this loss of pride and self-will that leads a person to serve other people. That's a mark of the Holy Spirit, that we're going to lose our pride. The gospel cuts us to, our, to the very uh, core of our being, and it provides that humility that leads to humble service. So what do, what do husbands and wives have in common? Well, they have this common call to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, they also have this other assumption that he talks about, uh, in 
uh, page 49. The, the reason that's important, the reason I went through all of that, is because Paul, before he even gets to the institution of marriage, he's assuming two people who are filled with the Spirit, which is a radical thing. Because he's saying two people who are filled with the Spirit don't come to each other like two vacuums. This is an analogy that he gives. You add one vacuum plus one vacuum equals a very large sucking sound, which is a giant vacuum, which is what he says. And if you look to anything other than God, which is what this whole chapter is about, you look to anything other than God to fill your heart, it's just going to suck it dry and it's never going to live up to it. And so if you enter marriage looking to your spouse to, to really take the place of God, which I think a lot of people do, you are going to be inevitably disappointed and it's going to ruin the marriage. Um, so what he's saying is that the picture that Paul presents here are two people who have already their most deepest needs and desires met in God before, they, before Paul even gets to uh, the differences in how husbands and wives relate to each other. I think that's important. I've heard a lot. I remember in seminary, I was taking a pre I was actually taking a class about how to do marriage counseling or classes. And I thought it was just kind of eye-opening that the, he didn't start with um, really emphasizing a lot of the differences. There's one book that I've, I've heard of, I've read a little bit of, that really, it was like this light bulb. It was all about the techniques of how men and women are different. And, I, and that's good up to a certain point. But what so shocked me in the seminary class was that he started with 1 Corinthians 12, which is about the body of Christ. And so what I think is really important for all of us is before we get to the differences, look at marriages. We have far more in common as husbands and wives than we do differently. And let's start with that, both for good and for ill, by the way. So let's address what this, let's just take it as a subset of a larger human relationship. How do human relationships work? And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 was, or 12 was, was all about in, in that class. So I thought that was was pretty important. We've already covered some of the uh, major scriptures that, sh- that show all Christians are to serve one another, to relinquish their self-will and their pride. Um, so let's keep moving here. How does the Spirit help us become servants of one another? And this is where, this is kind of the, the critical thing. How does the Holy Spirit actually give us what we need? How does he give us the power concretely to actually love? Well, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, this is some Trinitarian theology here, the Holy Spirit's job is to take what Jesus Christ accomplished and drive it home into the heart and the mind of the Christian, to make it personal, to make it experiential. And the way he does that is by, first and foremost, the hearing of the truth of Jesus. And he talks about and let's see, the, the first place, this is in page 48, the first place in the New Testament that discusses the work of the Spirit is in the Gospel of John. And he talks about the Gospel of John says that the Holy Spirit is to, um, he is to remind all Christians of what Jesus had said. He's going to remind you of the truth that Jesus had taught. And that truth is ultimately... Who is Jesus and what has he done for us? A.K.A., what is the good news of the Christian faith? 
And the good news of the Christian faith can be summed up like this. That we were made for God. We say this every Sunday. We've gone our own way. And therefore, we have all of humanity, all of the created world is under the curse of sin. And what I appreciate in this is he says sin really is just self-interest. It's selfishness. And so in that state of selfishness, what God has done in Jesus is that he's come down, taken our place, suffered the punishment we deserved, and offered us his perfect record of life so that we can be forgiven and be seen as righteous, as, as perfect in God's eyes, which is pretty remarkable. And what that, what that message of the gospel does is it cuts us to, as I said, the quick, and that we have no ground. It's the only way that grace can actually, this is the only religion, it's the only belief system that actually operates on grace, that we are far worse than we ever imagined, and that actually the There's nothing we can do about that. We can't just make ourselves better. Christians aren't just a little bit smarter than other religions. We haven't just kind of capitalized on an advantage to us. No, the the Bible teaches that we are far worse and that we were helpless and that God came and made us alive. That's Ephesians chapter 2. He made us alive. We We were like children running out into the street and he is like one who grabs us up and saves us. And what that does is it causes us to be both humble and incredibly secure. Secure enough to risk boldly for the sake of others. And that's what marriage you need, right? If we are called to love one another, we need some power uh, that comes from someone else besides our spouse. Someone else, something else, other, that's not cr- even created, that's going to just dry up eventually. So he uses this term, love economics, on page, I don't know what page it's on, and the the problem of self-centeredness is where he gets to. I really appreciated love economics because he's basically saying, you can't give away what you don't have. And when you are looking like a vacuum, if you're just going into your marriage to suck out of the other person uh, or to take from this other person to make you happy, when they, by the way, they're also flawed and imperfect too, when they fail you, you have nothing to offer in return. You have to have something in the bank, he says, to be able to return back. And that's where the filling of the Holy Spirit, the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts from the Holy Spirit, that he teaches us, he reminds us of just how loved and secure we are in Jesus. That has to be so real to us that when our spouses fail us, it comes out of us this, this, we're able to return love back to them. There was an illustration he gave, not in the book, but somewhere else, where he was saying in parenting, you know, this is, this is particularly true. It was true, it's true in marriage, this love economics, but it's especially true in parenting, because parenting, what do you do? You're talking about pouring yourself out for somebody, and you get nothing in return in parenting. I mean, a baby does nothing but cry and want and need, and you get nothing. From, I mean, maybe you feel a little bit better about yourself, but you're really getting far less than what the child is getting. And he's saying that child eventually grows up and gets to this point where maybe in the teenage years, you cross their will. You say, no, you can't go out to this party. No, you can't do that. And what do they say? How dare you? You've never done anything for me. <laughs> right? And what do you do in that moment? What do you do in that moment? 
Do you have the power, if you're looking to that child to fill something in you, you will be powerless to actually give them what they need. You will either look to them so much and cave under the pressure and just want them to love you and you'll just let them do it and you'll ruin your child. Or you will buck back and say, listen here, buddy, and you will give it to them and you will establish your right and authority and make them pay. And your child will hate you. He says the only way you can actually love, and this is going back to marriage now, the only way you can do that is to have the love economics, the love in the bank that comes from God so that you can gently and humbly move towards them and insist on the truth. That is what he's getting at in love economics. Um, I saw it this weekend. I was just uh, at CBS. It's amazing. Have y'all seen the movie Up? Yes. Okay. You know the, the old man in the movie? It's a, it's a Pixar movie or something like that? Yeah. I, it, well, he was behind me in the line. I'm going through the drive-thru to pick up a prescription. And I'm, I'm waiting in line. And I'm like, okay, this is great. I just happened to notice. I was like, wow, he really looks like the old man from Up. This is great. Well, it's taking forever in CVS. And... What, what happens is we finally go like a little bit further and all of a sudden I turn around and I just hear multiple honks. Something is going on. I thought it was me at first. I got really nervous. So I turned around, but no, this woman had to be about 40 years old, just starts berating the up man, the old man in the car behind me. And she's going, you have a whole car length, a whole car length to move up. She was trapped. She couldn't get out of her parking spot because he was there. And so, you know, whether you're married or not, whether you have a child or not, this is, this is how self-centeredness plays out. This is why we need to be filled with the Spirit. Um, <laughs> that woman, at her heart level, was thinking, obviously, of her own interests. And he talks about in this chapter that it's really difficult. Self-centeredness always keeps you blind to your own self-centeredness. I'm sure, I mean, we've all done something probably like that, whether it was exactly like this woman or not. We've all had our moments where we, if we saw the videotape replayed, we would want to just hide somewhere and crawl under the covers. What was going on in this woman's heart, what's going on often when we are looking for something to, it it makes us seem like we are the most important thing, that anything is that's going to cross, how could nobody else see just how important this is, and it causes anger and just absolute explosions usually, which is what I saw at the, at the CVS. Uh, page 56, the downward result, this is what, this is worth saying. Um, the, down, the result of self-centeredness is the downward spiral into self-pity, anger, despair, and ultimately your relationship gets eaten away. It makes us self-centeredness, which is what the root of sin is, it's pride. It makes us blind to see ourselves rightly, and it makes us also, in turn, hypersensitive to everyone else around us. It has both of those effects. It makes us super sensitive to everyone else, and it makes us blind to just how we're acting in the moment. So he moves on. Well, how in the world can you actually have happiness in marriage. Again, happiness is a good thing to be sought after. But he says this, uh, 
You only discover your own happiness after you have put the happiness of your spouse ahead of your own in a sustained way in a response to what Jesus has done for you. And that made me think of a question. What about non-Christians who get married? If we're talking about being filled with the Spirit, if we're talking about having the good news of Jesus so true in our hearts, what about non-Christians who seem to have you maybe don't have any of that with Jesus, but seem to have a pretty decent marriage. Well, um, this is a really important footnote that he gives in, at the very end there that I found pretty helpful. He's saying, by the way, those who aren't Christians can also have a good marriage, but it does mean that anyone who is living unselfishly and has an increasingly satisfying marriage, they're getting some help from God, whether they realize it or not. And what he's referring to is what's called common grace. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in heaven. So even those who aren't seeking after God, who aren't Christians, God still in this mysterious way gives his love, sheds his grace upon non-Christians and enables them to love sacrificially, to, to die to themselves. And I think that's important. One of the illustrations that he gives later on, or maybe it was earlier on, about how he and his he was going to the bookstore. He wanted to go to the bookstore when they went on a family trip up to the Northeast. And everyone in marriage can probably relate to this on some level. He had he's a nerd, so he really wanted to go to the seminary bookstore. But he's got three kids, and they were visiting friends, and he realized it's going to place a whole lot of demands on my wife if I just up and go to the bookstore. So he didn't say anything, but he still really wanted to go. And so he started to hope that maybe she would see things his way and, and you know, offer to kind of go. And as time went by and she didn't uh, read his mind, he then began to think, she must know I really want to go to the store and she's punishing me. She's keeping me from going to the store. How is it not so, again, and blinds us, our self-centeredness blinds us. And what's amazing is like, I, I felt so uh, inferior to their marriage when it said he brought this up, they both got really mad when at the end he kind of just erupted and she, go, she got really mad and said, you didn't let me serve you. You always are doing things for me and I rarely can find a good gift for you. I would have loved if, had you just asked to let you go to the bookstore. And she got really upset because she was denied an opportunity to serve. And I was like, I never get upset when I'm denied an opportunity to serve. But, you know, he was like, well, what kept him from wanting to share his desire uh, to go to the bookstore? And he said it was basically he, he didn't want to operate on the principle of grace. He's, and this is something that's so true, I think, in, in any marriage, Christian or non-Christian, those good marriages that, you, that, seem, that appear to be good, that have a lot of good works that maybe aren't Christian, uh, I think a lot of this is happening kind of on the surface level or on, on, in the heart level. He was saying that, you know, trying to receive a gift put him in a po point of weakness. He was in control when he was always the one basically giving the gifts to his spouse. But it put him in a position of weakness to actually ask or maybe receive a gift of grace. And uh, he ultimately would do all these good things because in, in his heart, it made him feel a little better about himself. 
he was justifying his own stance before God because he, I feel great about myself when I do all these good things. And oftentimes I, I find people when they're like, well, I'm a good person. Often the, the way they think about it is they could do a lot of good things. I mean, maybe they're blind to some other things, but even the good things that they do, they're doing it not for the good of the other purely, not for the glory of God, but to make themselves feel better. And that wears out quickly over time. Um, and so uh, that was one of the in- interesting things about the importance of being able to operate on grace in, in marriages. Uh, so we, oh, I want to read page 58 where he quotes Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. So the paradox that if we just try to put our own happiness ahead of obedience to God, we violate our own nature and become ultimately miserable. And Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So he he restates Jesus basically as saying, if you seek happiness more than you seek me, you will have neither. But if you seek me more than you seek to... uh, more than serve happiness, you'll actually get both. When, you ser- when you're looking for happiness, and that's what you're banking on, just your own self, uh, selfish happiness, you actually never get it, and you miss out on Jesus Christ. If you devote your whole life in obedience to God, you not only get Jesus, but you find happiness too as a byproduct, and you find truer, deeper happiness. Um, so... <clears throat> We need to quickly move on because I just saw it's 10-10 here. One of the things that happens when we enter marriage is we realize that we have a lot of wounds that come from a lot of the relationships, particularly with our parents, which is why I wanted to explore more of that. The other book that we'll look at in this class is going to kind of go into more family of origin stuff. But we all are wounded. We all didn't receive, whether it's relationships with our parents or whomever, people that we should have received love from, we didn't. And it, wasn't, it doesn't just have to be physical or sexual abuse. He talks about just like the coldness, the absence of receiving what we should have received. All of that wounds us. And what it does is it throws gas on our self-centeredness. And so we come into marriage and we start going, you know, if you really saw me, if you really know, knew what I've gone through in my life, you would see that my needs take precedence over yours. And that is a really helpful insight, I think, in marriage, because we all have these things, and we all, ref- if you really press us, we begin to see, really, if my spouse truly saw me, she he, or he would actually realize that um, my needs are clearly more important than theirs. Uh, and what he's saying is, no, this is a countercultural view of what it means to be a human, that we are all bent in ourselves, we're prone to selfishness, And we're prone to think that our needs are more important than others. And the wounds that we bring into marriage, the baggage we bring in, is just like throwing gas on the fire of our bent inward hearts. So there's several ways that we can respond to that. Um, In marriage, he noticed this common pattern. You begin uh, in the first, you marry somebody that you're attracted to, that you like. Everybody, it's natural to do that in marriage. But eventually, usually within the first couple years or maybe months, you start to see three things that he says happen. I thought this was perfect. You begin to actually see this wonderful person that you thought was married, uh, that you married to, 
they're actually quite selfish. You begin to see their selfishness so much. A second thing happens. You find out that this other person also thinks that you are far more selfish than they had thought when they married you, which is dangerous. And then each spouse concludes that their partner's selfishness is more problematic than their own selfishness. I love this quote that he says at the... uh, Let me find it real quick. And... Page 64. Basically, if two spouses say to each other, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, then you have truly a great prospect for a truly great marriage. Only when you consider your own self-centeredness to be the ultimate problem in the marriage, and both spouses do that, not just one, but both doing that, that is when you have the prospect for a truly great marriage. Let me conclude with, he talks about the fear of the Lord. Really, in that verse, verse 21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he begins to say that, the word reverence of Christ, it's actually the same as the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord. Or, you know, we, the fear of God being struck into somebody. And I think that is often misunderstood. But it's really important because if we're to submit to one another as Christians, to, like this is something for all, all Christians, we're called to serve, relinquish our own self-interest and put our needs below others. We need to do it out of reverence for Christ or out of the fear of Christ. And he talks about it's stronger than reverence, but it's not like this kind of absolute dread of of God, which often, you know, the fear of God can be. Alistair Begg was, is another uh, minister that I think sums it up really well. When we think about the fear of God, it's not this kind of, oh my goodness, what's God going to do to me if he finds out about what I've done? That's kind of like a, a what he calls a servile fear, or fear of like a slave. <clears throat> the fear of God is always meant to be a relational kind of brotherly familial term it's not like this slavish fear it's a familial fear and it's it's not what is god going to do to me if he finds out how bad i am he already knows by the way but what would happen to god if i didn't do x y or z what it's having this love of the honor of god and such an exalted view and a beautiful view of who, who god is in jesus christ that you are afraid for anything to be, um, to taint the name of God. That's what the fear of God ultimately is. That's what the fear of Christ is, to have such a, a, a love of his glory and his beauty that, um, that it transforms everything in your life. And it's not this kind of towering, crippling fear that God's going to smite you. It, because we see, obviously, God... Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is what Proverbs said. And, and God is gracious. There's not an Old Testament God who's just looking to, to take names and smite people. And then all of a sudden there's grace in the New Testament. No, no, no. The character of God is the same from eternity. The triune God is always pouring himself out in love for the other. And he's saying the fear of God is really the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. It's really the same thing, being filled with the Spirit and having a fear of Christ or a fear of God. Those are two similar things. Uh, and so how can we grow in that? Well, looking, he, he points to looking at God's Word, soaking it up, 
and reading it and praying and having this picture of the gospel always before our eyes. And I'm going to conclude here with uh, something I always say, pretty much, Molly, every marriage ceremony that I've ever done, I always quote this. But there's basically two ways to love, and this is what he gets at. Um, You can either look to somebody else to try and meet your needs, and in doing so, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. We're made to find our heart's desire in God, and out of an overflow of our love in Him, we are able to serve others. But you can try to love somebody in marriage by trying to get from them to meet your own needs, or you can be like God, and you can set your affection on somebody who doesn't deserve it and pour yourself out uh, for them. And this is a quote from Martin Luther in his Heidelberg Disputation, and I say it at every wedding service. I do pretty much. But it's the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And I think that's such an important, because that's what divine love is all about. It's what our love and marriage, and ultimately human love should be, but human love is often, I'm going to look for something that's going to please me, and, and that's about it. But instead, God's love seeks that which is unlovely. He sets through this committed, ferocious kind of love. He sets his love on those who don't deserve it, and it transforms them into people and objects that are lovely. So hopefully you get the idea of the importance of marriage, but also now, how can we do this? We have to make sure our hearts are aligned with what they were made for, that they're finding their greatest satisfaction in relationship with God, and that as married uh, folks in friendships and other relationships, we are pushing and, and drawing one another into that love so that our love on the human level can flow out of it. So there were a couple of illustrations I had to skip over there that were pretty amazing about when this love captures your heart, it can cause you to do some radical things. He talks about this World War II guy who um, forgave his tormentors in Japan, which is an amazing story. But we don't have time for that. So I know we need to scoot. Let me close us in prayer, uh, and we'll be back not next week, because we have, we're going to meet over there for Sunday school. We're not meeting next week, but we'll be back in two weeks and looking at what really is love. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the love of your Son that gives us not just an example to follow, but a power to behold, a power that changes our lives, not just in marriage, but Every aspect of our life, whether it's parenting, whether it's our work environment, we are able to return when we are basically held in contempt by others, we can in turn love the way that you've loved us, not seeking to use people, but to truly love them for their good and your glory and ultimately our joy. So we ask that you would help these truths take deep root in our heart this week and in the weeks to come, that we would serve others well and that you would show us our blindness, our own self-interest in in ways that maybe we're uh, scared to look at, but would you at the same time remind us of how secure we are in your love and that we are far worse than we ever imagined, but far more loved and secure than we could ever hope for. In your son, Jesus, it's in his name we pray. Amen.